Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Throughout my childhood, a pair of framed family trees hung on an upstairs wall in Grandma and Pa's colonial-style home, white with black shutters, in the wealthy, largely Jewish suburb of Scarsdale, a short commute from New York City. I'd go up to them as a boy and stare at the rows of generations spanning the two sheets of beige paper, feeling a sense of pride. This is where I come from, I'd think. This is who I am. That's Adam Frankel, reading from his first book, a memoir called The Survivors, a story of war, inheritance, and healing. Full disclosure, I met Adam because I sat next to a cousin of his after I gave the keynote lecture at my alma mater. After Adam's cousin heard what my memoir, Inheritance, is about, she told me about her cousin, Adam, who had a similar story. Though our details are very different, when I met Adam, I felt a powerful sense of connection. This is a story of paternity, love, and belonging. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I grew up on the Upper West Side of New York. You know, it was a pretty privileged upbringing. And for a long time, when I thought about it, I thought about it in that sort of happy, privileged way. I grew up on a pre-war building in the corner of 93rd and West End. I went to Trinity School, an old New York City private school. I was bar mitzvahed at B'nai Jeshurun on the Upper West Side, sort of a liberal, progressive Jewish bastion on the Upper West Side. If you'd asked me when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, how was your childhood? I would have just said, oh, I had a great childhood. You know, it was just so, I was so lucky, fortunate, loved by my mom and dad, my grandparents. Uh, And I still feel that way in many respects, even though Uh, Everything I'd learned later sort of cast it in a different light. So your parents separated when you were four? Yeah, and they divorced several years later. Interesting that you would characterize your childhood as happy, even with that's a pretty traumatic thing to experience as a kid. It is. You know, I I think uh, it really wasn't until relatively recently, until I started revisiting my childhood, that I realize there were these painful periods and there was much going on that I was absorbing but wasn't fully dialed into. And my parents' divorce for a long time I didn't think about. Now when I think about it, it it pains me to think about myself as a little kid at times. I think about fragments of memories of my parents fighting, doors slamming. But I, I tried to block that out as a kid. And I'm quite sure, I mean, I'm, I'm certain because I remember people asking me, how is it, you know, not frequently, but, you know, occasionally coming up and me sort of referencing a very happy childhood as if none of that had ever happened. So describe your mom for me. My mother is uh, 
Well, it's complicated. <laughs> um, she's an extraordinary human being. She is warm and loving and passionate and artistic and incredibly intelligent, deeply concerned with the world, the arts. And she's also struggled with mental health issues all her life. Um, you know, she's battled depression all her life. Before I was born, she attempted suicide, was hospitalized for a couple weeks for it. Um, she overdosed on pills, and she told me she w would have died if a friend hadn't come across her in time and rushed her to the hospital. My dad is just a prince of a man. He is uh, genuinely and earnestly interested in people and the world. He is a book lover who, you know, his <laughs> great hobby and one of the great passions of his life is waking up at the crack of dawn in Westchester and going to some far-flung estate sale somewhere so he can scour the used books that are, um, you know, that are being sold, hoping that he'll find something that is inappropriately priced. So he's hoping he'll find a treasure that somebody didn't realize was a treasure. This is his great passion. Um, and growing up, he... You know, he was just as supportive and loving a dad as you'd want. I mean, as uh, whenever I was interested in something, he would just feed those interests regardless. I was interested in baseball and uh, old-timers like Shoeless Joe Jackson. He'd take me to the New York Historical Society, and we'd look up newspapers of the 1919 White Sox. I was interested in Custer's Last Stand, and we'd go you know, look up, go to the library and get take out books on it. And, uh, and whatever I was interested in, he, he would just feed those interests in every way he knew how. Um, and his family, uh, so uh, he's one of, one of three children. Uh, my grandparents, who I always called Grandma and Pa on that side, were a big part of my childhood. My Pa, I was incredibly close to. And, and my grandma too, and my, my grandma lived into her 90s. Um, uh, my, my pa passed away when I was in college. And he was just in a, a incredibly warm and also deeply committed public servant. Not in a formal sense. He never served for any length of time in government. He had sort of appointments here and there. But he was a part-time speechwriter for Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey and George McGovern and um, all of these sorts of great uh, progressive champions in the mid 20th century. And, and so I grew up wanting to be like Pa. You, at one point in your book, describe a difference in the way that you're connected to your dad's side of the family and, and your mom's. Could you talk a little bit about, yeah. about your Zeta? And yeah, so my mom's family are Holocaust survivors. Uh, so my mom is one of four children. Um, uh, her parents, uh, who I always called Bubby and Zeta, were Holocaust survivors. Zeta was um, a prisoner um, a number of different camps, in, uh, including Dachau. My Bubby uh, spent much of the war in the woods of Eastern Europe with the partisans and the Jewish resistance. Um, and they were just a force in my childhood. Zeta passed away only a couple years ago, um, still going to his watch repair shop in New Haven practically till the day he died. Um, uh, and family gatherings when I was young, uh, you know, the whole, because Zeta and his, and his two sisters survived the war. Actually, his father did too, but his father passed away uh, decades ago uh, now. But 
when I was growing up, uh, he and his siblings, uh, the survivor generation and their spouses and their families, we'd have these sprawling Rosh Hashanah, um, Yom Kippur, every Jewish holiday, we'd all get together, Passover, sprawling affairs. And that family was just a, a, a force. You know, they were immigrants. They were scrappy, but also, I don't know, I mean, it, 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 thick Yiddish accent never had an, uh, an education. I mean, Zeta, when Bubby got her GED in the 1970s, went back because she was never given the chance to graduate from high school uh, because of the war. And Zeta, I don't even know the last grade Zeta had, maybe, you know, um, some middle equivalent of middle school, but one of the smartest uh, people I've ever met in my life in terms of raw intelligence. But thinking about them growing up versus my dad's side, you know, who'd gone to Northwestern and worked for these presidential candidates. Uh, it was just a very, there were two examples and two very different ways of being, ways of living, experiences, opportunities. Particularly on Adam's mother's side of the family, there was the sense that a lot was unsaid, hidden away. There was just stuff you simply didn't talk about. Secrets are a family tradition, without a doubt. There have been secrets in my family, as long as I can remember being a part of my Peretzman family, I've uh, remembered there being secrets. Did you know that as a child, you s- or sense it, that there were things that you didn't know? Every family gathering on, the, on that side of the family was sort of an exercise in an experience of things said and unsaid. Family members talking in English, suddenly switching to Yiddish when they didn't want the kids to know something. You know, somebody mentioning something that happened in the war, somebody asks a question, conversation ends. There was also a very big secret, which I I got glimpses of. Um, I'd hear people talk about, but in in that same vein, would shut off the conversation as soon as I asked too many questions, which was my family name itself. Adam's middle name is Peretzman. His Bubby and Zeta's last name. His mother's name. That was the name they came to this country with, the name of the watch repair shop that his Zeta ran for decades in New Haven. Peretzman Jewelers, it was called. It was the name on all his government identification. And it wasn't the name Zeta was born with. It was a name he either bought or stole in a displaced persons camp in Germany after the war, under circumstances he was shady about. And then there was the matter of a cousin who needed surgery and was taken to Israel so no one would know she was sick or the cousin who was never told she was colorblind. You know, I think secrets are a part of every family, but there is something kind of very pronounced about the way in which Holocaust survivor families sort of tend to their secrets. So you grow up on the Upper West Side, you go to Trinity, you have this quote-unquote charmed life, you know, through high school and you go to college, and you're aspiring to or emulating the uh, Frankel side of your family, you graduate from college and go into politics, yeah? Like the generations before you. Yeah, yeah. At some point in your 20s, tell me when you're living in New York City. Yeah. I was a um, you know junior speechwriter on the Kerry campaign, and after Kerry lost in 04, um, I moved back to New York City and was staying with my mother at the time. You know, I was helping Ted Sorensen, who was President Kennedy's speechwriter and close advisor on his memoirs. And I was sort of living at home while I was doing that, spending more time with my mother than I had since high school, since I'd left for college. And at some point, 
while I was there, I just started asking questions about family history. And it was totally innocuous. I didn't have sort of deep suspicions. I mean, looking back, there are dots I didn't connect. There are these sorts of things. But I didn't have any sort of burning questions or suspicions. I, I, I just wanted to ask some family history. Why did you and dad get divorced? I asked my mom, and she said, you know, why do you want to know the answer to that? You know, that, that sort of thing. I kept pushing and pushing, and, you know, ultimately she says, well, I never really wanted to marry your father. Again, not really an answer to the question. And so the, this sort of thing, I'd kind of probe and I'd get these answers that didn't really add up. I'd go to my father, and I said, why did you and mom uh, get divorced? And he said, oh, your mom had an affair with Jason. And I sort of... Uh, that was just a bombshell to me because Jason, uh, a man in the book I call Jason Black, was a presence in my life growing up. He was a, a quote-unquote family friend. I'd known him all my life. Uh, he was one of my mother's professors in grad school. I'd stayed with his daughter in Los Angeles at the 2000 convention, Democratic National Convention. I'd stayed with Jason's mother in Los Angeles when I had a tiny part in a Robin Williams movie called Toys you know, when I was in middle school. My immediate question to my dad was, how do you know I'm your son? And he said, oh, I remember the night of conception. Didn't, didn't miss a beat. I said, oh, that's, well, kind of interesting, all right. But okay, you know, you seem very confident about that. And I go back to my mother. Dad said you had an affair with Jason. And the whole thing quickly started to unravel. And I asked, you know, did it begin after I was born? No okay. And I'm sort of, I remember sitting with her in her apartment, the apartment I'd grown up, grown up in, sort of having this conversation and feeling, you know, like you're getting closer to just a crazy revelation. But I had no idea, you know, going into this, I thought I was going to get the same reassurance that my dad had given me. You know, my dad had been almost dismissive of my question. Yes, of course you're my son. I remember the night of conception, which what everyone thinks about that answer, like he, he seemed very confident delivering that. And I sort of just assumed I don't, it didn't even dawn on me that my mom might actually not give an answer that was as reassuring. But I just kept pushing, and I was, you know, I was asking her, how do you know um, dad's, you know, my, my father? Like, who's, who's my father? I kept asking this question, who's my father? And at one point she says, you know, um, first she's like, why do you need to know that? You know, she says, Stephen is the man who raised you. Why do you need anything more than that? And then I, you know, that was, I think, I think that was the answer that just kind of blew me over. Cause I realized at that point, holy shit, this conversation is just going in a direction I never could have possibly anticipated. And she just, she kept refusing to answer the question. I, I got, I started getting very upset at her and, and, and finally sort of kept demanding like, who's my, who is my father? Who's my father? And she said, Jason, uh, who do you think it is? I should, I, you know, who do you think? I don't know for sure, this and that. Who do you think it is? I kept insisting, you know, I remember. Um, mother has a sense. Who do you think it is? Even if you never did a DNA, because I, I could get the sense she was hiding behind this kind of veneer of the lack of certainty, medical certainty or something. So who do you think it is? Jason, okay. That answer just um, totally floored me. And I remember looking looking down at my hand. I mean, it's still recent enough. I mean, that conversation was in 2006, but the impact of it lasted so many years after and still still lasts that I can, I sort of remember, I can put myself in a frame of mind of what that did to me. And I just sort of had this experience then as I had many times later 
of just like looking at my hands, looking at my body, looking in a mirror and just feeling like, who is this? What is this body that I'm inhabiting? This doesn't feel like, this is not, it doesn't feel like my body anymore. It feels like a stranger's body. Um, and I, it just totally upended my, and shook my sense of identity, my sense of self in ways that I had not even faintly begun to grasp in that moment. I mean, I don't think it, it took me many, many years to begin to process just how devastating a revelation that was. In that, in that moment, I didn't even know how to process it. And in that moment, you were how old? 25. We'll be right back. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. As communities around the world confront new challenges, including social distancing and school closures, many of us are looking for new ways to relax and feel connected to the world, to ourselves, to one another. Whether that means getting lost in a historical story, a memoir, a work of provocative nonfiction, or a juicy celebrity biography, I know that stories help. Stories pierce our solitude and make us feel less alone. Audiobooks are such an intimate form. It's why I love them. We can just close our eyes, take a break from Zoom, and get swept away. I listen to Audible Originals, audiobooks, guided wellness programs, even comedy, as I'm walking my dog or folding my laundry, or behind the wheel of my car. Thousands of titles right at our fingertips. That's such a gift. At any time, but particularly during these times. Start your 30-day trial with Audible and get one audiobook plus access to the all-new Plus Catalog for free by visiting audible.com slash danny or by texting danny to 500-500. The trauma expert Rachel Yehuda, who Adam interviews years later for his book, describes trauma as best understood as a watershed event that defines your life and divides it into a before and after. It strikes me that for Adam, this moment of realizing that his beloved dad and his dad's family, whom he emulated and so greatly admired, were not his biological family, that he comes from someone and somewhere else entirely, that he hasn't known the truth of himself all his life, is precisely that traumatic watershed event, the divide, as Dr. Yehuda describes it, between before and after. I think it sort of gave me permission in a way to acknowledge the pain of what I'd experienced and to find a way f forward because I'd thought about trauma um, in many other ways. First of all, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, right? Nothing, and it is true. There's no comparison to be made between that and any other, you know, anyone who, uh, uh, any other form of trauma apart from genocide or war and conflict. and. Uh, in a time where we have people going and serving in Iraq and Afghanistan and overseas, that's trauma. You know, when, when I thought, when I think about trauma and PTSD, I think about that, I think about gun violence, I, uh, all of these sorts of things. And I was very reluctant to think about this as a trauma for that reason. I didn't want to, would never, and still would never try and compare. It's not about comparing any of these things. It's about just acknowledging that there are different forms of trauma. And, I was wary to do that. It almost felt, you know, indulgent, self-pity. I don't know, something. Um, but when, when Rachel said that to me, 
it did. It light, It sort of lightened me up. And how many years had elapsed between this before and after moment with your mother and that conversation with Rachel Yehuda? It's Yehuda. a decade. A decade, right. It's a decade. So you absorb this pretty unabsorbable information about yourself, and then you continue on with your life. You don't talk about it. You don't tell your dad. Yeah. And what do you do? Well, it's like secrets in our family. You absorb the secret and you move on. You don't you don't deal with it. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, the you don't ask, you know, the family name is not the family name. Don't ask questions, don't tell anybody. You know, when I was a kid, there was a story about my grandmother in the war was hiding in a bunker that they dug out behind the house and a baby was smothered because the baby's cries they feared might attract the Nazis who were sticking their bayonets into the walls in the house while they were in hiding. And so the baby's own mother, my you know, one of my great aunts smothered her own child. I'd hear this question. You start to ask questions. Don't, no questions. You know, don't, don't ask any more about this. You know, these sort of secrets, this is my frame of reference for processing secrets. But those are other people's secrets, frankly. And then this, so there's that layer of just sort of when there's a secret, you don't kind of probe. You just kind of absorb it and move on. And then there was the, just the overwhelming intensity of this. I didn't know how to, what to do with it. And... One of my many reactions uh, to it was fury at my mother. Um, so I more or less stopped talking to her. She proceeded to have a, a very bad response to whether it's to that and a combination of other things, you know. But she called me up in a, in a very bad state and I rushed her along with my uncle and I rushed her to a psychiatric emergency room because we were fearful for that she might try to take her life. I really just tried to bury this and move on. Right around that same time, not, you know, several months later, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine from the Kerry campaign, John Favreau, who had gone to work for Barack Obama in the Senate after Kerry lost. And Fav, we always called him Favs. Favs said, hey, it looks like I'm getting a deputy on the Obama campaign. You want to join? You want to come move out to Chicago? So I literally, he literally called me up while I was leaving a therapist's office with my mother because she'd insist, she'd pleaded with me to come to see a therapist whether to repair a relationship. We're literally walking out and Favs calls me up and says, hey, you know, you want to move to Chicago? And I'm thinking at, the, at that time, this call could not be better timed. Get me out of New York City. I don't want to deal with this. First of all, I'm inspired by Barack Obama. I want to be a part of that. And also, get me, get me out of here. I don't want to, I just need to remove myself from this situation. And I moved to Chicago in March of 2007, a few weeks after Obama announced his candidacy. And I was with him through the um, first term. And so for that entire time in Chicago, I, I just buried this and didn't deal with it. I didn't tell anybody on the Obama campaign. I mean, which is remarkable in retrospect because I don't, you know, presidential campaigns are incredibly intense. And the speechwriting team was very small. I mean, the, it, the whole campaign in the early days was small, but speechwriting team, you know, we all sat inches, feet from each other for years, literally. And even when we weren't at work, which was all the time, we were hanging out together. And at no time did I um, breathe a word about any of this to anybody. And I just kind of hoped nobody would catch on that I, you know, didn't really talk about my parents. They didn't come to visit like other people's parents did. And what was it like for you during that time? I mean, in, the, in, in your book, you write about running a lot, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're man, like trying to manage your own yeah. identity crisis and anxiety. Just talk a little bit about that. Like, it, you can push something away, yeah. but ultimately, 
the harder yeah. you push it away, the more force with which it returns. Oh, absolutely. And it would. there's no way to um, deny, hide, push down something like this. I mean, you can only succeed for so long, but it's a race against time uh, before it starts popping up in all kinds of ways. And, and, it, and it popped up in all kinds of ways over that period of time. I mean, at, at one point, I remember... I remember sitting in an airport bookstore, just sort of crouching, paralyzed with indecision and uncertainty about what book to buy. I mean, I had these weird, just anything. I felt um, at, at times like I just, I didn't know what I thought about anything. Like my, like this had rattled me and shaken me in such a profound way, this revelation, that I didn't know who I was or what I thought about anything anymore. I spent hours online, you know, uh, at night, sometimes going through Facebook and Googling Jason's family, my half-siblings, just staring at these photographs. And I'd go for runs to try and make myself feel better. And it would work for a short period of time, but then all this stuff would start creeping back in, the anxiety. It, was, it felt like a, like, a, like a chronic panic attack at times. So during that time, you're, you're in this kind of protracted panic attack. What happens? How do, how do you, what's your next step in terms of either facing this or finding some way to yeah. continue to absorb it? You know, I don't know that I would have had the courage to face it had it not sort of smacked me over the head. I mean, I think what, what ended up happening was I started um, dating somebody who is now my wife, Stephanie. We were dating for, uh, you know, a few months, and and I broke up with her. And I was just sort of heartbroken after breaking up with her and sort of puzzled and, and about why, why I'd broken up with her and going through all these kinds of emotions and stuff. And tried to backtrack and called her up to try and uh, win her back. And as part of that conversation with her, you know, said, look, there's just a, like a lot going on with me. <laughs> okay. Um, so she, she had not known. You she would... didn't know. I didn't tell Steph. Uh, it was really a secret that I just carried alone. I, and I was just afraid to talk about it. I felt like talking about it made it real. So I kept it to myself. Um, and so I shared this with Steph and Steph very wisely suggested that I see a therapist and start just trying to deal with some of the stuff. And so I did. And that was the sort of began the very early stages of me just beginning to face it. Part of what Adam must face, of course, is the fact that his biological father, Jason Black, family friend, has been hiding in plain sight all his life. He's spent time with Jason, spent time with Jason's own children, his half siblings, spent time with Jason's mother, in fact, his genetic grandmother. What was he supposed to make of this? And how was he supposed to metabolize it? For a long, long time, he worked to understand the mechanisms of this secret, but not to share it. Not with his dad, not with Jason. In a sense, he was now keeping the very secret that had been kept from him. The idea of broaching the subject with my father was unthinkable. When I had first had the conversation with my mom, I said, does dad know? And she said, no, it would, you know, break his heart or destroy him or something like that. And I thought she was right. So I was terrified of my dad finding out. I, I, every conversation with him that I had from when I was in Chicago and DC while he lived in New York, you know, I felt like 
were just we're having these surface conversations, but I was trying to make sure that somehow, in some way, you know, this crazy secret didn't kind of spill out because he'd ask a question, I'd give an answer, and it somehow would lead to that. I was just terrified of that. Every time when I'd see him, the same thing. I was I was just constantly worried about this. And any interaction, it just felt with him and with my grandma, who was still alive uh, at the time, and who I'd have you know regular Saturday check-ins with my, you know, 80-something, then 90-something-year-old grandmother. I just felt like I was keeping a secret from them, this horrible secret from them. I felt like complicit in this whole thing. I just couldn't imagine. It was unthinkable to me to, to raise it with my dad. And so I kept the secret from him for, for almost a decade. And reaching out to Jason only came about, you know, many years after I, I, just, I learned the secret. Only after I was married and we were thinking about having kids, and I said, you know, look, I first of all, I've gone through all this this painful experience. Let's just make sure it's not all for naught. That like I haven't been that my mom didn't give me the you know what she thought was the truthful answer, but actually wasn't. That somehow I am my my dad's son. Um, so and also I want the medical history. So let's just go sit down with him and let's get a, a paternity test. So we did that. I reached out to him out of the blue. Well, I thought it was out of the blue. I sent him an email that was along the lines of, you know, this may seem like it's coming out of the blue. I don't know whether my mother shared any of this with you, but, you know, she disclosed a secret, and would you be willing to um, have a paternity test for these reasons? And he wrote back this just supremely confident reply of, well, I'm quite sure you'll have a positive uh, result to the test, so you should decide whether you want to live in the safety of uncertainty rather than the burden of definitive knowledge or something like that. Some like very kind of abstract philosophical response and, you know, whatever. So I was like, yes, let's just get this paternity test done. Um, And we went to meet him and Steph came with me and he opened the door and I hadn't seen him in years. I mean, I grew up, I know what he looks like, of course. I grew up up, um, seeing him, but I hadn't seen him in many, many years. And, And I also... I hadn't seen him with any of this context. So when last time I'd seen him, the, the thought of him as, as my biological father wasn't even anywhere in my consciousness. But when he opened the door, both Steph and I were just sort of stunned because I'm his spitting image. And I mean, we, we dress similarly, we have similar mannerisms, our hair was cut similar. I mean, it, it was uncanny. Um, and and we proceeded to go get a paternity test and it came back 99.9% positive. For a while after that initial lunch with Jason and where we went and got the paternity test done, we would have this regular contact. And I felt I wanted to get to know him a little bit in this context and sort of see, I didn't know what I thought of him. I'd known him kind of all my life in one way, but not at all in another way. And I just sort of wanted to figure out what I thought of this whole situation. I. mixed in with that were feelings of almost betrayal against my dad that I was even sitting across the table from this man. Um, And so I carried that. But I I did want to get to know him a little bit because I didn't know what I thought of him. And there were, you know, strange conversations. I mean, on the one hand, we're having these, we'd have these talks and and almost all of them took place in the, the Carlisle Hotel on the Upper East Side. I mean, it's like out of some Woody Allen movie or something. And I'd find myself laughing at his jokes from time to time, feeling, you know, I'd almost be seduced. And there is this sense of kinship. It's un- it was unmistakable. And then he would start revealing things to me about 
his perspective, how he had seen my mom, how I came to be. And, and at one point he said, you know, you were, you were wanted. Uh, and it sort of took me aback. And I, what do you mean wanted? You were planned pregnancy. So it sort of took a beat because he was married at the time. He had kids. My mom was married to my dad. I said, okay. So I go to my mother after that and I say, Jason said I was wanted. And my mother says, well, I wouldn't say it was my idea. Okay. Um, so then I go back to Jason with that information. I mean, this was the whole process was just sort of triangulating and trying to piece this together because I would never get the whole story from anybody. And I say to Jason over the next lunch, I say, my mother said, I, I was your idea. Why did you, you know, why? Why did you want to have me? And he said, totally nonchalantly, casually almost, the idea of having a secret baby appealed to my sense of mystery and the erotic. Mystery and the erotic. Who speaks like that? <laughs> and I just, I mean, I don't even know. I still don't even know what to, what to say to that. My life and existence is a pawn in this man's intellectual like game. I don't know. Um, and it's darker than that because, you know, he also said to me at one point, you know, I was attracted to your mother because I was attracted to broken women. Um, he knew that she, you know, she'd been hospitalized for a suicide attempt a couple of years before they met. Uh, and later my mother shared with me in very painful and personal terms, the, that their relationship, while it ultimately transitioned into something that she would describe as caring, uh, I think began in a very ugly way when she was, when my mother was his student. So I, I learned all of this stuff. And I, over time, you know, I did figure out what I thought about him. And, it, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> Ultimately, I decided that the only way that I could move forward with my life would be to talk to my dad. So tell me about talking to your dad. And also about what your fear was about talking to your dad. I, for almost a decade, it was unthinkable uh, to me to... to talk to my dad about any of this. It wasn't that, um, I, I know my dad loves me. It wasn't that I thought he would kind of pick up and leave or something or, you know, be hateful or angry at me or something. I never thought that. It was much more subtle, but very frightening uh, to me, which was, I worried that he would just look at me a little differently. And that nobody would even, that it would be totally indiscernible to everyone except the two of us. That you would know that it did mean something. That I would know that he would just, it would be a glance, you know, it'd just be like, or a tone of voice or just something, a change in our, any change, honestly, any change that I could attribute, that I would attribute to that. Uh, you know, I was terrified of that. And it, it, no matter, you know, even if he would say it doesn't change a thing, but I could sense something in his voice had shifted or whatever. That's what I was really terrified of. And therapists over time would kind of broach the subject with me. I think it was obvious to them earlier because I saw, you know, a couple therapists between living in D.C. and New York, and they, they'd raised this. And I'd, it was clear to them earlier, much, much earlier than it was to me that I, I might need to do this, that I might need to talk to my dad about it. And eventually I, I came around to that. I mean, it was a very long time before I felt open to that. 
But I realized that this was just a blockage in my life, that it was, um, there is no way for me to move on with my life and that it will continue to haunt me, just kind of distract, absorb my whole emotional, psychological being with great consequence, I feared, not just for me, but like my wife, our family, my kids, my professional career, everything. I mean, it's, you know, it's so big. Uh, the spillover effect is huge in a life. I took the train up to Hastings and he picked me up at the train station. Uh, and I mean, I started tearing up uh, in the car and he started to get really worried, but I didn't want to get into it in the car. I said, let's just get back to your house. And his wife, mom, my stepmom, Helen, had stepped out. I think she, she knew there was some kind of important conversation. Um, she didn't know what, but she'd given us some space. So we were talking and, and uh, I kind of dove right in and I said, um, you know, a number of years ago, you may remember that um, uh, my uncle and I, Mendel, um, took my mom to the psychiatric emergency room. Yes, he remembered that. I told him that at the time. I said, well, the reason um, that that we did that, the reason that she'd had that kind of break uh, is that I I basically stopped talking to her. I was furious at her. And yeah, oh, okay. And the reason that I was furious at her uh, and I... I had a trouble kind of getting getting the words out, um, but I said you know, the reason I the reason I was so furious at her was because she told me that I'm Jason Black's biological son, and I'm I'm bawling at this point. I just hear him say, "Uh huh." Uh -huh. He's kind of processing the information. Then I hear him say, "I know," and I'm just I'm like I'm sobbing. I'm I'm listening to him, but I'm just. You know, my tears are just pouring down my face, um, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm hearing him right. Like, what uh, through the, you know, uh, you, you know, and he's looking at me, nodding, and he's saying, you know, yeah, I know, I know. He said, I've always known it was possible, and I'm just, I'm just f staggered. You know, what you have, I've always known it was possible. And then he says, and I made a decision a long time ago. It doesn't matter either way. You're my son. And then I, <laughs> I gave him the biggest hug that any, any kids ever given their dad. And he said, well, now at least I know not to come to you for a blood transfusion. You know, I, even now it's just staggered. It's, I mean, we, I talk about it with my dad and it's just the, the thing that I regret about this whole saga is that I just didn't talk to him straight out of the gate. I mean, it's just what a, what un necessary, needless heartache I created for myself and just strains in other relationships because that, that manifested as a result because all this stuff was wound up because I hadn't hadn't talked to my dad about it because that was such an important piece of, of moving through this. And he he suspected it all along. You know, of course he knew about the affair. He's the one who told me about it. And I learned that the reason that he had said to me, um, that he remembered the night of conception was because he and my mother had stopped having a physical relationship by that point in their marriage with the exception of one night during the summer of 1980, um, which in retrospect, my dad and I think was probably an act of misdirection by Jason and my mother to um, sow doubt as to who my father was. 
And he said that he considered getting a paternity test, but he decided he decided he didn't need the results at that point. You know, uh, that first, that conversation just unlocked the whole thing for me. And I finally felt liberated to talk to people about this, to open up to myself about it, to talk to, uh, starting with a small group, but widening out friends, family, um, because it just hadn't felt right. I think part of the reason I'd kept it such a secret was it didn't feel right to tell anyone if my dad didn't know. But once he knew, then there were different considerations at play. When I learned the, the whole thing, there was this shadow biography that emerged of dots that I hadn't known existed to connect. But then my dad even saying, you know, I'd considered a paternity test. It's sort of like, hey, I mean, this is my life. <laughs> like, this is, this is my life. And all this information has been withheld from me about my own life. This isn't anyone else's life. Like, I have a right to information about my life. <laughs> but like every story of a massive family secret, there are layers and layers that unfold over time. What has been hidden for so long doesn't just end with a revelation tied up in a neat and tidy bow. Adam had family members who didn't know about any of this until just very recently. The imminent publication of his book necessitated that he and his dad reach out. So his dad called his sister Nancy, Adam's aunt. She was very empathetic and understanding, and then they hung up. She called, And Nancy called my dad back a, a few hours later and shared with him a story. And the story was, when I was very young, I must have been around four or five or so, after coming back from a family trip to Bermuda, where I'd go growing up, I'd always go to Bermuda with my grandma and pa and my dad. My pa was sitting with my Aunt Nancy, and my pa said to Nancy, you know, it's possible Adam is not Steve's son. But, and this is very similar to what my dad had said to me, he said, but it doesn't matter one way or another. He's my grandson, he's my other child, and I love him. I'll always adore him. And... Uh, so you get that gift. I got you get that, that gift. gift from beyond the grave. I got a gift from beyond the grave. I mean, it was just extraordinary because I never thought I would ever have an answer to the question of how they would have responded. And then Pa, I mean, it's almost as if Pa did it deliberately, just planted a seed without any conscious sense. I mean, I, you know, no, he, he was a brilliant guy and the most empathetic, emotionally intelligent. I mean, he was a, a just an incredible human being. And, you know, a part of me does wonder whether he just kind of left it there, knowing that maybe someday that piece of information might be useful in some way. When my dad called and told me and shared that story, I, I practically collapsed on the street uh, in tears. Adam didn't set out to write the survivors to share his story with the world. He initially started working on a book about his four grandparents, Bubby and Zeta, his grandma and pa, and their experiences. But as he wrote, he sensed that it would be helpful to write about his own experience as well. After all, whether you're a writer or not, expressive writing, writing about feelings that are weighing on us, helps, it really does, it has physical benefits. There's ample and very rigorous scientific research and evidence pointing to this. As I started writing about it, it became overwhelmingly clear to me that 
writing about this, you know, was essential to my healing and being able to move on and just processing it. I mean, part of the, part of what was so difficult for me was that there was, it was like a jumble of information that I didn't know how to disentangle. I had this relationship with Jason, these crazy comments that he's making to me about my mom and this information my mom's sharing, my identity and my dad and my grand. How does all this stuff fit together? Who am I? And when it's just in your head, it was just, or in my head, it was like a jumble of information that I didn't know how to make sense of. But the process of writing it allows you to understand it or allowed me to understand it and tease out the different threads, see how they are connected, um, and ultimately kind of repair my sense of self in the process. The last section of the book is called Healing. And you use it as a quote, as sort of ep- an epigraph for that section, an ancient Greek inscription on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. And the phrase is, know thyself. What does that now mean to you in light of everything that you've discovered and absorbed and processed and is knowing yourself what is ultimately healing? I think for me, knowing myself has allowed me to um, pursue healing. I feel now more grounded and sure of who I am than maybe ever in my whole life. Uh, I think there was a time before this revelation where I might have thought I was, but it was, you know, on shaky ground. And then there was a period after this revelation where uh, the, I felt the ground shaking. And now I can, uh, I, absor- I know all the, I have all this information and it, it is who I am, all of it, you know? And that was part of my way through it was kind of accepting and recognizing that, uh, you know, I'm not just the product of the parts of my family story that I want to be a part of, a product of. <laughs> that, you know, the, my, the, the heroic Holocaust survivors uh, experience or, uh, you know, my family members and my Frankel and Minnow side who were public servants and, and, you know, contributed to the life of this country. I was very proud of and am very proud of. I am a product of all of that. I'm also a product of some ugliness in the relationship between my mother and Jason. I'm a product of the cruelty of mental mental illness that my mother has struggled with for much of her, her life. You know, I'm a product of all of it. You know, good, bad, ugly, heroic, and some of it, I don't know, shameful. Some of it behavior that, that, that it's hard for me to, at least when I think about Jason, forgive. Uh, but it's who I am. And, you know, I, I can't do anything about that <laughs> now. And I'm okay with that. that. That's fine. You know, that's okay. It took me a long time to get to this point, but here I am. And having that recognition and, and understanding is actually in a way that I never could have foreseen extraordinarily empowering. I'd like to thank Adam Frankel for sharing his story. Adam is the author of The Survivors, a story of war, inheritance, and healing. You can find Adam on Twitter at A.P. Frankel. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. 
You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started.